All right, we're going to be in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 6, and we are going to cover some ground today. Otherwise, we're going to be in Isaiah for two years instead of one. So we're going to cover some ground today. And I swore to myself I was not going to do a New Year's teaching. In no way, shape, or form was I going to connect it to New Year's. But as I read through the scripture and as I saw what the Lord was saying here through Isaiah, I really have no choice but to connect it to New Year's. And so um, maybe it's my rebellious attitude. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, uh, it's hard for me to give this teaching today because we are going to talk about New Year's resolutions. But the reality is, is that the re- resolution I want you to think about is completely different than what the world looks to. You see, New Year's has always been interesting to me. Again, my rebellious personality as a kid, I always asked why. It's kind of funny, you know, we did the whole thing that those of us who have young kids are lucky enough to do. We watched the ball drop at 9 o'clock, and then we went to bed, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, we have the kids there in front of the computer because we're watching it on, on the computer, and, and uh, they've got their uh, sparkling cider and their little champagne flutes, right? And we, you know, clinked and celebrated and everything, and then Kara looks at me and she goes, Dad, why did they drop the ball? And I looked at her and I said, I have no idea. If you think about it, it's really just kind of weird, you know, of all the things we could do, right? Uh, we light off fireworks and we drop the ball. Now, is there not anything wrong with it? No, but I had to ask the question, why do we celebrate New Year's? And why do we celebrate it on this day of all days? Well, this is where I burst bubbles, as usual. Um, this is the god Janus, okay? And I say god with a little g, okay? Not the big g, god. This is Janus. He's the god that we celebrate with the month of January. He is a Greco-Roman god, and he has two faces, That's always good, follow a God with two faces, right? He has a face that points to the past, and he remembers all that was there, and he has a face that points to the future, and he remembers all that will be and the hope that is there, okay? Now, these just make sense, right? But it's interesting to me as I drive through Salem, I don't know if I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I look at all the church billboards of what they're going to teach that week, right? And it is amazing how many church billboards this week said, looking to the past and looking to the future, right? The way that you would worship Janus on January 1st is that you would have a great party with tons of feasting and tons of of, uh, uh, hedonism. And then, starting on January 1st, you would make promises to Janus, promises of how you would live your life better in the year to come. And this is where we get New Year's resolutions. Now, is there anything wrong with New Year's resolutions? No, I don't think so. But see, what's interesting to me is that December 25th was chosen for Christmas because that's where the pagans celebrate the rebirth of the sun god. It's where the earth starts getting more and more sun each day. That's why we had to snag it and take it and steal it and put Jesus on it to redeem it. But for some reason, New Year's has never been redeemed. It's never been turned into something where we worship Jesus. Uh, the, the church of the past used to spend uh, night services where they would... Uh, confess and pray and worship and act in repentance. And that's been replaced by a lot of churches doing things like prophecy updates or what have you. But this has never truly redeemed New Year's. Now, when we look at January 1st and we as Christians start to make New Year's resolutions, we have to ask ourselves, how many of us have ever had successful resolutions? I want you to think for a second. All the years you've been alive, how many of you have had at least one successful year-long New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. A couple, sort of, maybe, I think so. I have been massively successful my whole life, every year. Every year, I am 100% successful. You know why? I make no New Year's resolutions. And see, that's easy because if I were to do something like, let's say, lose a couple pounds, here's what would happen. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was like, I'm going to get back on track. So I start exercising, and then, am I the dumbest person or what? I did it around Christmas. So candy and fudge and everything else, and all of a sudden, I've gained three pounds. That's about how my New Year's resolutions would go if I made them, okay? And so why do I think about New Year's resolutions today as I look to this text in front of us? Well, because what's interesting to me is when most people state New Year's resolutions, what they state is, I'm going to add something into my life. Some people do say, I'm going to take something away, take a bad habit away, but most people say, I'm going to add something in. As a pastor, here's what I hear every year. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to attend my my church more. And my question, my follow-up question is always this. How are you going to do that? Well, I'm just going to do it. See, the worldly mentality, the promises to Janus are always, I'm going to add things on. 
I'm going to add more on. I'm going to suddenly become a better Christian, even though I'm taking nothing out of my life that keeps me busy or keeps me distracted. And what I'm going to show you today is that the text today is going to talk about the arrogance of the people that were the followers of Christ. And the New Year's resolution of a Christian should really be this. I'm going to eliminate everything that I lean on and lean solely on Jesus Christ. You see, adding more Bible reading or more, you know, church attendance, those those are good things, but here's the truth for you. You will fail every time. Every time you will fail if you try and lump Christianity on top of everything else in your life. If you take Jesus and you simply add him as, as the thing that hangs in your car on your mirror, or the bobblehead doll that sits on your dashboard, the, the magic, uh, the magic uh, thing that, you know, like a lucky rabbit's foot that'll make your life a little bit better. If you, if you add Jesus as the cherry on top, you will fail. What the Word calls us to is to eliminate everything and to put Jesus in our midst, to seat him upon the throne. And we as Americans have to stop believing that we can simply add Jesus to what we're already doing. We have to start over and remove everything else that we lean on and instead lean upon Jesus Christ. And so today, what I want to call you to is I want to call you to resolve to lean on the Lord. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Resolve to lean on the Lord. You might say, well, Hans, this doesn't sound any different than any other New Year's resolution. No, as I get through this, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. Because I believe that what we see over and over again in Isaiah, and if you haven't caught this yet, you're going to catch it as we continue more, is that we, the American society, and especially the American church, we are no different than the people of Judah. I mean, their characteristics, their qualifications, man, they are ours to the T. And you will see it again today as we go through. And this idea and attitude of of arrogance that we can do it if we just try harder, it's what gets us in trouble all the time. It's it's what's at the core of false religion, that we can earn our way in relationship with Jesus. We can try harder and suddenly feel Jesus' presence more. No. What Christ calls us to is to eliminate everything else, to lay down our lives and pick up the cross. To not turn back to what we know, but to only strive forward in Jesus. And we'll see that today as we look at the arrogance of Judah and what God's call to them to repent looks like. So let's jump into the text for today, and we'll see this fight between the arrogance of man and trusting his own strength and the necessity of relying on God alone, starting there in Isaiah 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of reason against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, they devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. What we're going to see first here, if you're taking down notes, is this. We're going to see God's call to repent from arrogance, from this idea that we can do it on our own, that we are strong enough in ourselves. God's call to repent from arrogance. Now, how do we see this? Well, what you're going to see from 9-8 all the way through 10-4 is you're going to see this recurring statement. At the end of every stanza in poetry here, is for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, I don't know about you, but if you grow up with any kind of um, dysfunction in the home or anything like that, um, you start to think about this hand coming at you. And I think this is the idea a lot of Christians have, that God is waiting to strike those he loves. His hand is stretched out still. But that's a misreading of this text. That's not what God is saying. God loves his people and those walking with him, he is not waiting to smack them. This is towards a people who are rebellious in nature and who are basically saying, God, we don't need you. We can do it ourselves. So this statement, for all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still, it's not a statement of a capricious God waiting to hit his people, but it's a statement of a patient father giving his child a chance to make the right decision. It's very similar to if my kids are acting up. Um, Guys, worst thing you can do is to count. Just FYI, parents, don't. One. No, no. Two, what are they going to do? They're going to learn that they wait till three, and then they obey. You obey right away. So what you do is you say, you're going to obey. Here's your choices. You're making a choice right now. Choose the right one, or here's your other option, and it's a consequence. 
which do you want? That's what I do with my kids every time. And they'll sit there, and if they get that look in their eye, you might as well just go get the consequence, right? <laughs> and bring it back. Okay, this is what you chose, right? But what you do is you, you wait, and you give them a chance. And, and God isn't here like this, okay? Notice my face and my features here, not waiting to smack the people. He's going, guys, you're, you're choosing a consequence here. Make a better choice. Make a better choice, right? Kind of like I've said before, when Jaden or John have that lightsaber ready, and they're about ready to just, you know, not just like a tap against their brother, but they are lining up like Babe Ruth, man, right? And you say, make a good choice. And they go, oh, and they kind of put the lightsaber down and move on. That's what's happening here. God is saying, make the right choice. What has happened here is God has removed his hand of protection. And while he's not active in judgment, God is giving them over to their choice to have God away from them and for them to exist in their own power. And this is the beginning stages of judgment. God hasn't actively judged them here, but by removing his hand of protection, he's saying, I'm going to let you have it your way. And so they have been smacked and beaten up by Assyria as Assyria has come and made movement into their land, and Syria and Israel has beaten up on them. And rather than saying, you know what, life isn't going so well. Uh, There's just something wrong here. Maybe I should re-examine my life as a nation. They said, no, we're just going to keep on pressing. We have the strength. We can do this, right? Did you guys notice after 9-11 what happened? For two whole weeks, we as a nation flooded the churches. Two whole weeks. Oh, what is wrong with us as a nation? And then immediately after that, what happened? Even our government started to quote this out of context and say, we will rebuild. Rather than saying, wait a minute, should we check and see whether or not God's hand of protection is taken off our nation? We said, no, we have the strength. We will rebuild. And I find so many Christians and and people that call themselves believers do the same thing. They say, yeah, my life is in ruin. My relationships are broken. Everything's wrong, but I will rebuild. Maybe you should humble yourself. Maybe you should drop to your knees and say, what is going on in my life that I need to re-examine and change? Maybe there's things I need to repent from. See, the first characteristic that God gives, this is one of four, is he gives these characteristics or signs of arrogance that have already started to creep in. And the first one is pride in the midst of correction. Write that down. Pride in the midst of correction. I can always tell where my heart is or the heart of one of my congregants, when I sit down with them and I say, look, you're acting in sin. There's something blatantly and boldly wrong in your life. Jesus isn't a priority, or maybe you're acting in relationships in a way that is not loving. And I can tell where their heart is in that instant, because if there's humility, they will listen. If there's arrogance, they will respond in arrogance. We as Christians seem to be really good at giving correction, but very bad at taking it. Because the Christian church has set up an environment where, ah, I didn't like what the pastor said, so I'm going to go somewhere else. We don't sit in accountability because we have no covenant relationships. And this church, this church, I would call us to be people that exist in covenant relationships. That don't say, I'm going to just keep pressing through. And if I lose people, if they fall by the wayside, I don't care. I'm right. That's what they were doing here. They were not saying, God, is there anything in us that we need to check? They were saying, we know we're right. I've observed a frightening trend in Christianity where this is the case. Because I think of the lax perspective on discipleship, I don't think that this is a new trend, but I think that's one that I'm seeing even more. Because of the lax in uh, discipleship and accountability, what we see happening in the churches is this. We give this altar call to people. They raise their hand. They say, I want to be a Christian. And then we say, God bless you, you're a Christian. And then they go on their merry way, and they're never taught what the Word says except for tidbits on a Sunday morning, if the church goes through the Bible. And so what happens is the person keeps living their life in the same way, and they're never taught what the discipleship looks like of walking with Christ. They're never taught how to bring their thoughts into captivity to Christ. They just keep doing their same thing. And then they come up with phrases like this. I heard this phrase once from from a family of, of believers Someone was calling them to to act a little bit more in line with the Bible, and they responded by saying, no, Jesus died so I can do whatever I want. Now, we all, what? How can you believe that as a Christian? Guys, that's majority of the church. 
Why is the majority of the church doing things that are so blatantly not in line with Scripture? And I'm not going to give examples. There's a million examples out there. Our sexuality, our, our, our priority in giving to the church, our priority in attending church, right? How children treat their parents. The Bible says children, respect your parents. Some of the children in this church are just straight up disrespectful to their parents. It amazes me that we think that being a Christian means no matter what I do, I can just continue on my merry way. But that's what we give the church when we say, you're saved, you're good to go, no problem, we'll see you in heaven, have a nice life. If we don't have discipleship to back it up, saying, no, 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 we walk in the way of righteousness. Do you know your Bible? If not, let's study it together. Then we leave people in this place. Now think about this for a second. Think about this truth. When we turn to uh, throughout the word, first place I'll turn you is this. You can write this down, Psalm 139. This was David's response when he was convicted. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, we as Christians are called to check ourselves and say, wait a minute, something's broken. Now hear me, Some people have gotten this confused in theology. They think if something is wrong, God must be mad. It's not an SAT question, guys. It's not one way and then the other. No, it is if something's wrong, there is a possibility that God is disciplining you. Now, as Americans, we, oh, that's terrible. I don't want to follow a God who disciplines me. I don't want to follow a God who doesn't discipline me. We have to be people that desire discipline if we are out of the way. And if we are not walking in his way, we need to be corrected, and the people of Judah were not. Turn with me to Proverbs really quick, and take a look at what Proverbs 3 says. Proverbs 3, 5. Many people know this verse. We love to quote it. Because if we take just five and six out of context, it seems like a very emotional, awesome verse, okay? Let's read it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your, straight your paths. Oh, that feels great. And if we take that out of context, we can all go, oh man, this feels so good. I, I trust in the Lord with all my heart. But look at what's above it and below it. Verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let not your heart, uh, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. That means you carry it with you always. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Sounds pretty in-depth. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Guys, to be a Christian means that you discard everything you believe and everything you know and you replace it with what this book says. And you don't go cherry pick for what you believe and find what backs you. You say, I know nothing. And this is everything. See, the people of Judah said, no, we we don't need that. We don't need God's discipline. This is obviously not God correcting me. God loves me. It's at the heart of most of our worship songs. God loves me. No, no, guys, he might love you, but love equals discipline, and he might be disciplining you too. Now again, does it mean we're always being disciplined when life is bad? No, it doesn't. But we need to check ourselves and see first. Turn with me from Proverbs back a little bit to Job, and look at Job 31. Job 31. Job's final appeal, in my opinion, this chapter is one that we need to memorize as Christians. We've talked a lot about the way of God being righteousness and justice, following God in his way. And what Job does here, and the reason God calls him the most righteous man on the earth at the time, is because look at what he does when he is in the midst of pain and turmoil. He checks himself. And at the end of this whole thing, he's going to get to the place and God's still going to say, no, you're righteous. You've, you've done all these things. You've walked in this way. But you don't understand all the variables, Job. There's still other wills at play. There's Satan's will. There's man's will. 
and there's things that are breaking you down. And in the grand scheme of Job, God is trying to speak the truth of his sovereignty, that he will redeem all things and that we can trust in him. But look at some of the things that Job says. I don't want to get off too far off topic here. Look at what Job says, uh, 31 verse 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from Almighty on high? Then he says in verse 5, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God be my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, in other words, I've, I've been a person who has uh, uh, wanted material things or other people, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows from me be rooted out. Uh, look at verse 9. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. Man, if the church let alone took this verse, took this one verse, we would have to repent. Why? Because the current statistics show that upwards of 60 to 70% of men that go to church are addicted to pornography. 60 to 70%. That lines up with pastors, too. The number for women is rising, and it's getting well over 50%. If we just checked ourselves as the church in general with this one thing, we'd have to repent. Look at verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. Verse 16. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired. Whoa. Whew. Can you imagine if the American church with our gigantic million-dollar buildings and our fancy houses and our three-car garages actually listened to this one and said, let's check ourselves and see if we are actually caring for the poor. See, if we check ourselves as the church in general, man, we got a lot to repent from. A lot to repent from. Maybe you as an individual and hopefully us as a church, hopefully we are not falling into this, but the reality is, is that we cannot become like Judah and say, oh, we're just going to keep on trucking on the way that we do things without constantly having introspection and saying, Lord, search me and know me. Find any way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. This is the first sign that arrogance has crept in. When we don't resolve to lean on the Lord, but we resolve to lean on our own strength, and when we're corrected, we fight against it rather than humbling ourselves and leaning on the Lord. The second thing that we see here, the second sign of arrogance, is collapse of leadership, political and spiritual. When God has taken his hand of protection off and he started to let judgment creep in, you see a collapse of leadership. And not just leadership that's good at what they do, but leadership that is moral. Leadership that acts within the truth. Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 9. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies, uh, teaches lies is the tail. So he's speaking of both political and spiritual leaders here. Verse 16, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. You see, they had the Word of God available to them, but those that were leading didn't go to it and weren't honest with it. They, they corrected it and perverted it in their own way. And those who were reading it or being taught by it, it was available for them, but they didn't take advantage of it. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Why would God suddenly pull his, his strong character of compassion and say, I'm not even going to care for the fatherless and the widows? Because the people had become so decrepit that there was no good in them. And this was Judah, the chosen people of God. And I would submit to you that because God's people, the ones that followed him, weren't walking in the way to the fatherless and the widows, it seemed like God had forsaken them. Because the people of God weren't doing what they were called to do. They weren't walking in the way everlasting. Every mouth speaks folly, foolishness. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this one section because we've talked about this a ton, especially in chapter 3. But as a lack of repentance occurred, God removed any honored men or prophets that spoke truth and replaced them with false leaders. 
The prophets who teach lies are the tail. You guys have all heard the phrase, uh, the, the tail that wags the dog? It's supposed to be the dog that wags the tail. Okay, a little bio- biology lesson for you there. Okay. But the tail was wagging the dog. Here's what this means. It means that the ones who are supposed to stand firm in the truth of God and speak the truth even if it wasn't received well or heard well, they started to cater to what people wanted to hear. They started to serve people with what they wanted to hear. They started to attach their politics to what the Word said and started to attract one group of political people. They started to serve people with things that were tantalizing and conspiracy, right? Is Trump the Antichrist? Come next Sunday to find out, dun-dun-dun, right? This kind of stuff. They started to operate in myth and and, uh, prospect rather than in the solid Word of God. And again, I see a horrific trend in the church that we have known for a long time. This is what Paul said to Timothy. You guys know this one well. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths are things that are not based in fact, guys. Be careful of this trend to get so excited about prophecy that you're speculating that you're speculating about what may never occur. Focus on the truth of what it says. Act in the way of righteousness and justice. See, if we wander off into myths, we're going to be in big, big trouble. And I'm seeing good pastors, good churches become uh, so engaged in what the people want to hear, whether it be always encouraging and positive. Guys, I'm sorry. I wish that Isaiah were more positive and encouraging. It's not, right? Amen? I mean, there is interspersed massive encouragement because of the Messiah, but the rest of the time it's like, oh God, have mercy on us. And it's meant to be that way. Why? Because I need to say that once in a while. I don't just sit there and go, gee, I can hardly wait until Jesus comes. Because when he comes, guess what he's going to ask me? What did you do with the life I gave you? Were you walking in my way? I need to be more concerned with that than I do about the date or the time of when he's coming. I need to be active regardless of when he comes. Now also, notice the outcome of what happens here. The followers of those leaders went around speaking so much foolishness that the people were turned away from what they were supposed to be doing, acting in the heart of God, caring for the fatherless and the widows, and they were just walking around talking myths and foolishness. Their walk was not connecting to their talk. And the people of God became worthless to the kingdom of God. They needed to not lean on things that didn't matter. They needed to resolve to lean on the Lord. Well, next we see not only the pride in the midst of correction, the collapse of leadership, but also a society based on selfishness. A society based on selfishness. Let's look at verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. In other words, it is not fruitful. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. And the Hebrew there actually is speaking to devouring your own offspring. You're so concerned for yourself. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. See, the only thing that combines them is what they're against. Does this sound like the church at all? We consume on the left and right, and yet we are not filled. We get more programs. We spend more money on our buildings. We spend more money on us, and yet we're never satisfied. And then the only thing that we actually connect on is what we're against, not what we're for. Judah is the American church. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, notice the intertwining of man's choice to devour one another and God's use of them and their free will to be part of his judgment. God's sovereignty and man's free will here seem to be 100% compatible and parallel. He's using the wicked free choice of man to serve his purposes to punish and judge the people. Now, everyone here is out for themselves. No one considers the other. They all do whatever is necessary to get ahead. But guys, this is not who we are to be. You see, what the Word calls us to 
is interesting because it says that they devour, they bite and devour one another. Well, this is what Paul said. You can write down Galatians 5. Paul said to the church at Galatia, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Ouch. This idea of self had crept in so far to the people of God that it wasn't just in the surrounding people, it was in the people of God. No longer was the most important thing amongst the people of God to care for one another. It was how can the people of God serve me? What can you do for me today? As opposed to how can I serve all of you today? They were relying on their own strength and their own selfishness and they needed to resolve to lean on the Lord and let everything else go away. Because when you lean on the Lord, you realize that not only the Lord is your support, but all of his people are as well. I get such an awesome front row seat to this in this church. I want to take a moment and pause from the heaviness of this word to say to you, I am so, so, so thankful to be part of this church. Not just as pastor, but to be part of this church. I mean, it is amazing to watch you guys care for each other. Those of you who get this idea that it's not about self, it's about others, it is amazing to watch you work. Even this Christmas, my wife was extremely ill, and we had some folks in the church bring food over to our house for Christmas Eve. She's the one that usually hosts and does the big shindig, and her heart was broken that she couldn't be at church. I mean, she literally was in tears when I showed her the video of uh, Julie singing, and I said, well, I I cry every time Julie sings too because it's just that beautiful. But she was in tears that she wasn't here, and it was so cool. Friends brought over food and just cared for us. And, and I said to him, I said, guys, I, I, one of Kelly and my sins and our downfalls is that we do not like to ask for help. We are self-supporting. But thank you for loving us. Because it gets hard to operate on your own, doesn't it? Those of you that do ministry in various capacities, one of the things I really want us to be encouraged in in this, this next year is that we need to serve those who are giving their homes to the foster system, their families to the foster system. We have a number of families in here that do that. We need to surround them and love them better than we have even in the five years that we've been doing this and care for them. We need to love the Taves over in Indonesia. Write them notes of encouragement. Care for them. We need to be people that love one another because that is what Christ determines or, or uses as the characteristic of those that follow him, not selfishness. Well, lastly, we see the fourth characteristic of arrogance creeping in here materialistic immorality. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. We have the wrong impression, and don't mishear me, I'm not a communist or a socialist, but we have the wrong impression in this country that commercialization and making everything about the bottom dollar and capitalism will save, it will rise everyone up, and it might. Mark my words, Trump may be one of the most successful financial presidents we've ever had. And everybody's going to get really excited behind it, right? He's already bumped the stock market. He's already bumped a number of things. He's going to save the country. What he's going to do is he's going to immerse us even further into materialistic immorality. Materialistic immorality doesn't mean I want to be rich. It means that you are so focused on money that everything else disappears. That your life is about your job and about maybe even paying off debts. You can be completely in debt and still be materialistically immoral. Because money is your thing. It is your God. It is the thing that you succumb to. And I fear that we as a country, we're not turning from this. We are getting more and more engaged in this. And rather than fulfill the covenant of being people that sought out the poor to help them, we are becoming like Judah, where we are writing laws and creating a system in which it oppresses the needy and it removes justice from the people. I used to be one of those guys that stood up and said, welfare is a waste. Just give them a job. 
Well, guys, once you step out of your bubble and you step into the real world, you have to understand that there are people that do need help. Now, I'm not getting political here. The reality is, is there are people, whether they be uh, handicapped, whether they be uh, in, in just terrible situations, whether they come out of an abusive home, whether they were brought up without education and have no prospect for a job, it is our duty as a society to care for them. And if we just say, let's get a bigger economy so that we have more jobs, well, that's not going to solve the problem. Now, giving away things and enabling people in terrible, ridiculously foolish behavior isn't the solution either. But there has to be a better way. And I suggest it starts with the church, not with the government. The government cannot save the world. Christ can and did. And as we await his kingdom, we need to be acting upon the principles of the kingdom and bringing them to bear. We need to resolve to lean on the Lord. You see, the way of Yahweh is simple. It's to live in covenant faithfulness with him because he's faithful to us. To learn his ways as a community by studying his word in depth so that we then act it out and bringing our very thoughts and lives into accordance with this. Judah was not doing so, and so God's hand was outstretched saying, I don't want to judge you. I don't want to bring this upon you. Repent, and they would not. Righteous judgment always has to come when there is a lack of repentance, and it did. And so next, the big section that we see here in the text is this. We see God's judgment on the arrogant. God's judgment on the arrogant will come. Now, I want to paint this picture for you guys for just a second because I think reading it in the Bible, it, it gets a little bit hard, okay? Imagine, I'm going to, just, I'm going to be really narcissistic and put myself in, in, in the, the story here. Imagine that one day Hans Rasmussen steps up on this stage and says, we as a nation need to repent and it needs to start with the church and we need to stop doing all these things of arrogance. Does that sound familiar? I kind of do that every Sunday, right? And let's say somebody heard it and they went, wow, this guy doesn't seem to be very patriotic. He's slamming our country, slamming our president, slamming the possibility of any president because the president isn't righteous. He's not a moral leader. And neither was any other option we had at the time. Okay? We as a country need to repent. And somebody says, hey, let's grab him and let's take him to the White House and stand him in front of the president. So I go and I stand in front of President-elect Trump on Inauguration Day and I say, President Trump, God loves you, he died for you, and he's begging you to read his word and act within his law and lead us in the way everlasting. And if you do not, we as a nation, maybe not in your term as presidency, maybe not in the next 10 years, but sometime in the future, we will be judged for our arrogance and God will be proved true and we will be proved liars. And he says, no, away with him. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. That's what happened in Isaiah. This is not some mythical fantasy. This was a single man who was a prophet of God, reading God's word, saying, we need to repent as a country. And he went to King Ahaz and said, you need to repent and lead us in repentance. Eh, away with him. We'll keep doing what we're doing. And that generation died, and Isaiah got very old, and then he died, and what happened? Judgment. It will come. Our nation will be destroyed unless we repent. And it starts with the individuals within the church. Who was he going to bring to do that judgment upon Israel, his chosen people? He's going to bring a group of people known as Assyria. God is long-suffering and patient, enduring the evil of man as far as he can. But he has to bring righteous judgment upon them. And he'd given Judah time to repent and lean on him, but their arrogance only grew and they started to follow their own wisdom. And so Isaiah now speaks to the fact of what's going to happen. Take a look here in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arphad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? 
In God's sovereignty, this is one of the best passages on sovereignty, by the way. The topic of is God in control? Is he the cause? What you see here is what's called compatibilism. The compatible will of God with the compatible will of man. God's will is to use a wicked and perverse and godless nation to judge Judah, another perverse, godless nation at the time. And he says, my heart is against a godless nation. I'm going to use them as a consequence. But their will, verse 7, they don't intend that. They're not coming as a consequence. They think they're coming to destroy. See, God's sovereignty here is he didn't cause their will to be evil, to destroy. He's going to use it, though. And so you see the free will of man and the free will, the sovereign will of God, connecting here and being compatible to accomplish the purposes of God. And what did they say? They said, we've, we've destroyed everybody else. We'll go destroy them. And they literally speak against God. This statement here, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? The word there in images is the word elil. It means they're gods that are no gods. They just called Yahweh a no god. That he doesn't exist. And so you might cry out and say, wait a minute, okay, uh, Judah was being rebellious and God's going to punish them. What about Assyria? Well, this is where he steps in here. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, what is that? To punish in righteousness the arrogance of the people. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For what does the king of Assyria say? He says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the people's And as one gathers eggs, they have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. If you're paying attention here, you notice that the statement of the godless is the same as the statement of the God, supposedly God-fearing. My hands have done it. Look at how strong I am. I can keep doing what I'm doing. There is no difference. What I fear is that the church is becoming just like this because we are really no different than the world. The world spends their lives trying to make money so that they can do whatever they want with their money, and the church does the same thing for the most part. I believe we are different to a certain extent as a church because we are so generous, but we're very similar. The world lives to be entertained, and the church lives to be entertained. Pastor, he's I didn't tell enough jokes or stories. I just get so bored going through the divine word of God. Uh, This is our very bread. Jesus himself said, man cannot live on bread alone, but what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what sustains us. And so their heart was the same thing, and so God now steps in in verse 15 and says, wait a minute, I punish all arrogance. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. It's so interesting when you read the Bible, we are pictured as uh, pottery that can be smashed. We're pictured as a piece of wood that can be swung around. That's truth, isn't it? I think the center of our theology has very much become us. What is God doing for me? How is God loving me? But the reality is is the center of theology is God. And it is our pleasure and our honor to be used by him in whatever purpose. We do not get to rearrange theology because it doesn't make sense to us. We must go to his word and say, what does his word say? And unfortunately, the non-believers and the believers look the exact same here. It says, verse 16, Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. It's so interesting. I just uh, was doing some reading on Assyria this week. And man, you go to their capital cities, guess what's there? Dirt. Sand. And a few remains of some buildings that were once grand and majestic, the biggest in the world. They're destroyed. There's nothing there. 
the king of Assyria, the one that actually came and destroyed Israel. It's found in some of the hieroglyphs that recount their history. He says, I have brought peace to the world. Do you know that he was known, Tiglath-Pileser was known as the Prince of Peace because he had brought so much peace to the world? And yet today, where is he? He's dead in a grave, dust. And he will stand before the judgment seat of the true King of Kings. Arrogance leads to nothing but judgment. Only humility puts us in a place where we can stand before the Lord in truth and honesty and say, Lord, do with me as you will. Because we can be assured that a good God will deal with us in righteousness and judgment. In the correct way, in the loving way. But arrogance will lead us in a way that is not good. And in the midst of all this arrogance, look at verse 19. In the midst of the giant forest of arrogance, he says this, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Does that sound like very good odds? In the midst of all of this arrogance, there were only a few that stood truly in humility following Yahweh. Jesus states the same thing, doesn't he? He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Not because he makes you beat yourself with a whip or you know, give up all the good things, but because it's hard to give up everything you know and submit to his way. It's hard to do that. We innately think we are the center of the universe, the one with true wisdom. Only Jesus is that. And so we need to resolve to lean on him and let everything else go. Arrogance had taken hold of both the chosen people and the pagan in the day of Isaiah. And the defining characteristic was a lack of relying on the Lord. In fact, they were just as religious as ever. You remember chapter 1? They went to church, man. They tithed. They did all the sacrifices. They were a religious bunch, but they did not lean on the Lord. He was simply added as that magic item like the rabbit's foot that brought them good news. And when he failed in bringing them comfort and good news and prosperity, because he was disciplining them, they cast him aside. But in the midst of all of this, there will still be a few trees, he said, a few that are the righteous remnant, the ones who truly do wait on the Lord. And this is what characterizes them. And we're going to call them today this. We're going to call them the resolute remnant. Resolute remnant. These are those that last through the midst of the judgment and stand firm in the Word of God. And again, I want to point out to you, those who were resolute, those who were truly followers of God, they weren't magically transported out of the trial and tribulation. Out of the violence, the burning of the city, the raping and pillaging, they were dead center in the midst of it. And they stood resolute and firm on the word of God. Look at verse 20 there. It says this. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, meaning Assyria, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Now, if you notice here, this is the exact same thing that didn't happen back in 9.13. It says there, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. But here, the ones who are called the righteous remnant, who are fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah thus far. Remember, one of his children was called, the righteous remnant shall return. They are the ones who lean on the Lord. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Now, you might say, Hans, this is not a very encouraging New Year's message. <clears throat> My job is to strengthen you, not to feed you lies in order to make you feel comfortable. The reality of our country, of our nation, of our church, of our world is that arrogance is taking more of a foothold, not less. Look at who we elected as our leader. Now, I don't care if you like Trump or not. He is one of the most arrogant people on the face of the planet. 
Look at who we elected to lead us. Again, don't hear me wrong. The other choice was just as bad, if not worse. But look at who we elected. It is stating to us that we have let arrogance take hold in a massive way. And this is not to say that other presidents have not been arrogant. Very much so. And take it from one who is an ex-athlete. I know arrogance when I see it. Arrogance has taken hold in our world. And we need to be a people that realize that we need to be a remnant in the midst of the arrogance, not sinking to their level, not continuing on with what we think is right, but going to the Word and saying, what is right? We need to be people that resolve to lean on the Lord. We need to be people that lean on Jesus and Jesus alone. Turn with me really quickly to Deuteronomy 30. Got a couple more places to turn you and then we're done. Deuteronomy 30. And notice Moses' call to the people. One of his last sermons that he gives to the people. He says this. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. Look at verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us? And bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Why? Because Moses had given it to him. God had given it to Moses and Moses had given it to him. And he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish." You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord your swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Now, turn with me to Romans 10. Romans 10. And look at verse 5. Isaiah just got done speaking in Romans 9 about the remnant will return. He literally quotes from our text today, and Paul keeps on talking. And he says this in Romans 10, 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Where is he quoting from here? The passage we were just in, Deuteronomy 30. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And again, I proclaim to you the same thing I did when I taught this before. This is not a formulaic way to get into heaven. It is a statement that Jesus is Lord of your life and you will submit to his ways. That's what it is. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. To believe in Jesus as the one that the Father God, the Creator God, gave the name Lord, the one we answer to, means that we walk in a way that shows that he is Lord, and we lean only upon him, not on anything else. If we call ourselves Christian, truly call upon the name of the Lord. Adonai, Lord, 
master, the one who directs me and guides me and tells me how to live, we will be saved. See, what we need to understand today is this. We need to resolve to lean on the Lord. Okay, okay, Hans, I get it. So I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to come to church. No, 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 no. That is part of it, but I want to get there through this. What does it look like to lean on the Lord? This is the application of today. What does it look like to not have the arrogance and to instead be the righteous, resolute remnant that leans on the Lord? It means this. You clear away everything that is either against the Lord or distracts you from him. What I am about to say is probably going to be the most unpopular New Year's Day sermon that has ever been preached for Americans, but here's what it is. It was said to me great a few weeks ago. I've been kind of overworked. My health has been failing a bit, and I decided to take some time off uh, around Christmas, and I came to the conclusion that all my mentors have been speaking truth. I knew that they were, but just how to get it in place has been kind of hard. But one of them said to me a, a few weeks ago, he said, uh, sometimes, Hans, you, you can't figure out how to move stuff around on the plate. What you need to do is dump the plate, put it back on the table, and then start putting what matters back on. And when you run out of room, you stop. Oh, that's some wisdom, isn't it? See, we as Christians, we hear New Year's Day resolutions and we say, I gotta, I gotta get up more early in the morning, but you know, I, I watch reruns of NCIS until about midnight and then, and I really need that time to decompress and then in the morning I gotta get the kids going because I gotta get them to daycare and then I gotta go do this and I gotta go do that because I gotta go earn that money to pay for the daycare that I put them in and, and then I get home and I'm so exhausted that I don't have any idea and you know, it's okay, God understands, you know, rub it up, dub thanks for the grub, we eat the food and then we do our thing and I need my NCIS time and I'm making fun of NCIS. It could be whatever, Netflix binging. We keep rolling and we keep rolling and we keep rolling and then we run into next January 1st and we say, oh, this year I'm gonna do it. And then our kids get out of the house and we think, great, no more sports. Now I'm really going to be invested in Jesus. But we've set up such a habit for 30 years or 18 years or 20 years that Jesus isn't part of our life. He has become the magic icon that we set on top of the rest of our pile. And my suggestion to you this year is to clear your plate and resolve to lean on the Lord. And that means making hard decisions. I'm going to resolve this year to spend less time counseling you and more time praying for you. My mornings are not going to be given to counseling anymore because I'm going to be on my knees in prayer that you are reading your word and submitting to Jesus Christ. Most of the problems that come to me in counseling will be solved by that. And I would suggest that you do the same. You take a look at your schedule, the way you spend your money, and you say, you know what? We don't need all the toys. We don't need all the activities. When your children hit 19, and I do guarantee 19 because the majority of children do not enter into collegiate athletics, they will not care whether or not you gave them yet another athletic league. They will care whether or not you spent time in the Word with them every day, praying with them every day, and singing worship with them every day. I just read a book this week called Family Worship by a man who is awesome talking about spiritual disciplines. And I told Kelly that I was just pierced through the heart because for an entire chapter, he lists off all of the heroes of faith, men who I hope to be like one day. And he notes how every single one of them spent not one devotional time a week, but one every morning and every evening with their children. Are you kidding me in this society? The only way to do that, guys, is to stop with the worship of sports, to stop with the worship of TV, to stop with the worship of entertainment, and to clean your plate and to rebuild it with Jesus at the center. To not lean on those things that make you feel comfortable, but to lean on the comforter who will actually bring you comfort and truth. Hans, this sounds so legalistic. No, it just sounds right. Let me show you a couple of verses that I would encourage you to start memorizing through the rest of this year. And I've pointed out in those a couple of pieces that I've bolded. And I'll finish with these and then we'll be done. I know I've gone long today. I apologize. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. 
Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of heart. So you will find favor and good success in sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with, what's that word in bold? Your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In, what's that word? Your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Good thing he was exaggerating and using hyperbole. There is no hyperbole in this, guys. Proverbs 3, 1 through 6. Next, this is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, and I would say hear, O mission. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Parents in the church, I, I, I beg of you, I beg of you to take this seriously. Hans, why is my 13-year-old acting up? How much of Jesus was a priority in your home until they were at the age of 13? We cannot fix kids past the age of 10 unless they have a foundation of Jesus in them barring a miracle of Jesus Christ. He can still definitely help. But parents of mission, we must be teaching our children every day, multiple times a day. Don't sit down and do the 30-minute, i got to come up with the teaching with three points like Hans does, and hopefully there's some allegory and some alliteration. And, no, <laughs> okay? Read a little bit of the Bible. Sing a hymn that everybody knows. Pray a little bit over them and pray for them and pray with them. Call the 10 minutes good and let them go about their day focusing on Jesus. And then before they go to bed at night, sit down with them, read a little bit of the Bible, sing a song that they know, teach them a new one, pray with them and for them and over them, and let them go to sleep. Immerse them in Jesus. Immerse them in Jesus. See, teaching them diligently is what that looks like. You shall talk of them, the laws of God, the way of God, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Question for you, is this easy or hard? Hard. As a father of two six-year-olds and a three-year-old, this is hard. And what I have realized is that in order to make this a priority, I must cast aside a lot of other things. All right. Is this just the Old Testament? Nope. Here's what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Throughout the Word of God, we are told that we need to resolve to lean on the Lord. I want to challenge you today to make decisions this year to remove that which does not, defi uh, uh, does not glorify or honor God and those things which maybe don't leave any room for Him. Something might be totally mundane and innocent, but guys, if it doesn't leave room for the Lord, you will regret it when you stand before Jesus. I have no regrets in my life. The one regret I do have is that I wasted so many years not learning about Jesus. And I resolve to not let that happen to my children. And I resolve to not let it happen to you. We need to resolve to lean on the Lord this year. Doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, whether you have kids or not, whether you're married or not, resolve to make your life about learning Jesus' way and then putting it into action. And I want you to come up with a plan for how you individually will be in the Word personally each day. For how each of you will be in prayer personally each day. For those of you with families, with children, I want, to, want you to come up with a plan for how to resolve to be in the Word at least a couple times a week, if not every day. Spouses, I want you to get in the car today or get home, and I want you to look your spouse in the face. Wives, do this to your husbands. If they have not led you and asked you at some point today, what is the plan we're going to make together? Ladies, you step up, you look them in the eye, and you say, so, what's the plan going to be, leader of our home? and do it with just that much sarcasm because they should be leading you. Singles in the room, sit down with your roommates. Or if you live by yourself, sit down and come up with a plan 
How will I lean on Jesus this year? What do I need to get rid of in my schedule, in my material possessions, in the way I live life to follow Jesus? Talk about application. That is your application today. Don't walk out of here and go, huh, it's a good thing I'm already doing all that. Every one of us should be sitting down today and saying, if we're going to take this seriously, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we will get rid of so that the Lord can fill our lives? You know, it's funny. We all love retreats, don't we, as Christians? Why do we love retreats? Well, I'm in the Word in the morning, and I'm in the Word in the evening, and there's nothing else that's bothering me. I'm so sad I'm not at the retreat anymore. Make your life a retreat, guys. Clear out everything. Get in the Word in the morning. Get in the Word in the evening. Come with the body on Sundays. Be in your small groups. Make your life about Jesus. You won't need to go to the mountaintop. You'll be at the mountaintop 24-7. And in the ups and downs of life that may not feel comfortable, you'll know that you're resolving to lean on Jesus.